This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. If this is not a civil military relations crisis, I do not know what one is, period, full stop. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The third annual Future Strategy Forum focused on cooperation and conflict in the time of COVID-19. The conference connects national security practitioners and academic scholars. The panel discussion on the impact of COVID on the military also examined the use of the military in complex domestic crises. CSIS Senior Fellow Dr. Alice Hunt Friend moderated the conversation, which took place on June 4, 2020, and it featured a panel of CivMil experts. The Future Strategy Forum is brought to you by CSIS and the Kissinger Center at Johns Hopkins SICE. I want to welcome you to our panel on COVID-19 in the U.S. military. We have a wonderful group assembled here, some of the women I most admire in national security. Um, and I'm gonna introduce them briefly and then we'll get into the questions. So first we have Dr. Risa Brooks, who is the Alice Chalmers Associate Professor of Political Science at Marquette University. And she's also an adjunct scholar at West Point's Modern War Institute and a non-resident senior associate uh, for CSIS. Next we have Pam Campos Palma, who is a political strategist and consultant. She served for more than 10 years in the US Air Force as an operations and anti-terrorism intelligence analyst and as a frequent speaker on veterans issues, democracy and effective political organizing. Then we have Dr. Mara Carlin. Mara is the Director of Strategic Studies and an Associate Professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. And she spent more than a decade serving in the Pentagon in a variety of roles, most recently as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Strategy and Force Development. And last but definitely not least, Mackenzie Eaglin. She's a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where she works on defense strategy, defense budgets, and military readiness. She's also a regular guest lecturer at universities. She's a member of the Board of Advisors of the Alexander Hamilton Society, and she's a member of the steering committee of the Leadership Council for Women in National Security. Um, I just wanna welcome everybody, and I wanna kick off with you, Risa. Um, so in the first few weeks of the U.S. response to the COVID-19 pandemic here at home, a few state governors and members of Congress called for the military to take the lead in the domestic response. Now, of course, we're seeing military units be used for domestic stabilization purposes as well. Um, in principle, how should we think about the appropriate role of the U.S. military in non-military domestic crises? Well, I think we want to use the U.S. military very sparingly in those contexts, um, and especially for the COVID um, context, thinking about that, there are two sort of reasons for that. And one is it risks sort of contributing to a kind of militarist ethos um, that Andrew Bacevich and Rosa Brooks have written about the idea that military solutions are what the American people should be looking to to solve their problems when the problems really aren't much about the military, especially COVID. It's about public health. It's about um, how to mobilize an effective response to a pandemic. 
Um, and so the idea that we want to look to the military to solve that is part of a broader sort of phenomenon, a broader sort of tendency to think the military can solve society's problems, and that's not healthy. Um, the second reason why we want to use the military sparingly is that we need to focus on building civilian capacity and having Americans look to their civilian elected leaders, their policymakers, um, and why other citizens to help um, deal with problems and invest in those solutions. And so sort of reflexively saying military save us doesn't help solve that more fundamental important problem. So Pam, over the past couple of weeks, multiple state governors have called up National Guard units. Um, and certainly before that, they were called up to uh, assist with the COVID-19 efforts. And now they've been called up in response to some of the uh, violent incidents associated with the, the protests. Um, and then, of course, we've also seen the president call on active duty Army and Marine Corps units as well. Um, what are some of the things our viewers should consider as the military does become involved in this domestic crisis on, on both sides, both on the, the COVID-19 piece of it, but also more broadly? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's a big question that I have been agonizing over for the last week and certainly for the last few, for, for a while, but now has been ratcheted up. Um, there are three calls that I have gotten consistently um, recently. One is from National Guard people, military spouses, and even active duty people saying, you know, what's happening um, and being unclear um, and being scared, frankly. Um, the second is from, communities of color, um, leaders saying, um, having a conflation and not an understanding of the differences, right? Um, the civilian military divide, the differences between um, different security forces, but feeling this militarized presence and what, um, you know, Risa just said specifically, which is this doesn't feel like the kind of security threat that requires all of this um, militaris militarized presence, right? So a confusion. Um, and, I, and the third one most recently today is um, transatlantic colleagues of mine, um, you know, in Europe asking me like what's going on um, and also wondering about um, the main consensus, which I think just has so much evidence to what Risa just said, which is do we have a consensus and a mandate around the utilities and functions of our military? And do we have the equipped accountability and leaders in place to deploy our people, right, who are people with needs and families um, uh, in a responsible and adequate manner. Um, and I think uh, the other thing that has been coming up for me as well is in both, you know, the pandemic responses and also, you know, the current uprisings that we're seeing because of systemic racism in our security forces, um, I've been seeing and really been stunned by um, this notion of, but our military is so great and so noble and so perfect. And we know that that kind of bias and love of an institution doesn't let us wrestle with the realities that um, it is an imperfect institution um, made of people um, that has its own uh, systemic um, issues. And the last thing I'll say on this is, um, 
accountability, accountability, accountability. Um, I testified to Congress last December, particularly um, on diversity and inclusion in the military. And something I foot stomped there was that representation alone. One, the military is, um, you know, we don't have the representation we need that reflects the communities we serve. Um, so where is accountability? Representation alone, we need more accountability um, mechanisms. But also there is this question about endless funding. Um, are we investing? If we don't have a consensus on security threats, do we have a consensus um, on what we're funding, right? What we're getting, what are we ready for? What are we prepared um, to mobilize for? Um, so yeah, I'll stop there. Um, Mara, I wanna go to you because you've been working on a book for a while, thinking through the long-term impact on the force of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and I, I wonder if you can help us think through the long-term impact of COVID-19 on the US and the US military broadly, um, but also the crisis we find ourselves in. Are there any parallels there in how you grapple with something so monumental? Absolutely, and thank you so much for convening this terrific panel, Alice. Uh, I'm finding myself like nodding in violent agreement and really wishing we were actually in one place, but such as it is. Uh, you're right, I'm working on this book. Uh, I find it pretty interesting that never before in contemporary US history have we had so many fight for so long with such inconclusive results and so much public disinterest. Uh, when we look at COVID, the, there are a couple parallels. Uh, geographically, there's this dynamic wherein uh, both the post 9-11 wars and COVID had an effect on the homeland and overseas, and we had to figure out how to strike that balance. Uh, there's this dynamic in which there's going to be an absence of this feeling of victory in both of these. And so we'll probably search for kind of these ersatz victories that aren't terribly satisfying. I think exactly like Risa was saying, uh, there's this dynamic in which the military is going to be asked to lead and do things that, frankly, it probably shouldn't be doing and it's not terribly good at. You know, when, when I look at the post 9-11 wars, I sure wish we had spent a lot more time investing in other parts of the tools of, you know, in the tools in the, in the toolbox of statecraft. Uh, but we overwhelmingly focused on the military and, and there are both opportunity costs and real problems uh, in doing so. It's interesting though, I, I do think there's actually one, one difference in particular, which is for a period of time, COVID is affecting the entire US military which we actually didn't see for a lot of the post 9-11 wars. There were you know, large swaths of the force that were kind of able to just do their thing and not be terribly affected uh, by what was going on in Iraq or Afghanistan. Uh, and, and that obviously had all sorts of outsized effects, right? We, we saw senior Air Force leaders get fired uh, for, for their kind of disinterest in and prioritization of, of what that looks like. So I, I, I think, uh, you know, we're gonna be studying this, this for a while, I think, we will see it at least for this period of time affecting everything we do in our defense space, recruitment, retention, um, particularly by the way, as it relates to families, force management, force development. Obviously it's gonna play a big role on the money front and on the strategy front. Um, and, uh, and, and I suspect just like the post 9-11 wars, we're kind of not really going to know when this ends. Pam, I want to go back to you for a moment to talk about the uh, specific effects of the pandemic on veterans and on the veteran community. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. Um, it cannot be lost. 
I mean, I had to have, um, I had to get real about this myself last night that just two weeks ago, because time is, you know, uh, we're in a time warp right now, but two weeks ago we were having virtual vigils um, for the more than 100,000 people that have died from a deadly pandemic, right? 100,000 Americans. And disproportionately those deaths were black, indigenous um, and impoverished communities. And the correlation that I'm thinking about is again, the disproportional representation of our military. And I really wonder, you know, have we, do we have the data of how our militaries and families were impacted by that pandemic personally, right? Um, as all Americans were. Um, the other thing is, um, I've gotten a similar notion around, um, these are different, it, I'm gonna say something that's hard. Um, it is more vital than ever that we as a security and defense community get very clear on how we are characterizing emerging threats. I have seen combat special operators call me um, that were more terrified of a pandemic than they were um, of their last deployment. Um, not just because of the uncertainty, but I also think that it is because of you know, our inability as a community to be agile to the current emerging threats of the moment, right? That require brains and not just brawn, um, uh, you know, uh, so that's one thing. And then the last thing is um, in both of these um, instances, both the pandemic mobilizations, um, the pandemics, uh, the pandemic and also now, I'm hearing a lot of veterans, including myself, if I'm so vulnerable, moral injury. Um, moral injury is something I that's keeping me up at night and waking me up in the morning. Um, I am getting constant stories of veterans saying like, what did I serve for? What was this all for? So a real moral conscious dilemma around, you know, are our top security leaders treating us um, with the value that we deserve, right? Um, and not as expendable tools. Um, and also just, you know, is our country really um, equipped um, to live up to its ideals um, and not treating people in a pandemic as disposable um, and also treating our security threats um, with the agility and innovation that we deserve. Mackenzie, let's talk about um, what the active duty force is, is up to as well. And in particular, the, that impact on the force for readiness purposes. Um, you know, we heard a lot in the news about training delays and operational impacts. We know the services are trying to strike a balance between readiness and the measures necessary to implement physical distancing. Can you walk us through what the pandemic means for, for US military residents, sorry, readiness, and, um, and what about support to civil authorities? Does that have a readiness impact one way or another? Sure, uh, and thanks for including me in this conversation. I'm grateful to be here. It's really a mixed bag, so the Defense Department runs three large workforces, the active duty civil, uh, the active duty uniform workforce, plus their families, uh, the defense civilian workforce, and the defense contractor industrial base that provides equipment, software, and services, and IT to the department every day. So just sort of generic American civilians, but who receive their paycheck essentially from the defense department. And what you see across the workforces are different outcomes and results, but focusing on the active duty force, this is hard. Uh, the, so for example, you know, 
what's happening with defense policy is a, mostly reflected in wider society now. So, you know, stay home if you can, social distance when you can, wash hands, wear masks, et cetera. Uh, but there is also a stop movement order issued for a permanent change of station. And that's something of the order of, I believe, 30,000 families are still are waiting to move and um, filing for an exception to the policy, uh, which has been extended. So I'm on the board of the Army War College, and this is a huge issue. They don't want to start the academic year virtually. It's a, it's a group, it's a small group of select senior leaders that need to be together, even if it's just on post. Not necessarily, you can still be on post and virtually have your instruction, but the challenge there is, you know, but they, they want to get everyone there first. So the Army's talked a lot about, you know, safety bubbles, which is where you ensure that whatever size group you have, a war college class, a squad, et cetera, first you verify that everybody in it doesn't have the virus through self-quarantine and isolation before you meet. And then you keep them as a group healthy together and you don't let them interact with other groups and people. Uh, Army recruiting's great, uh, retention is high, but you look at the Air Force, that's not their situation. Uh, recruiting and retention are down. Uh, the pilot pipeline is significantly impacted in a negative way uh, because of the enhanced health protection measures. Um, major exercises have been canceled, like Defender Europe 2020 and, and et cetera. But you know, it's not all it's not all bad news. There's a lot of lessons learned. The Defense Department has to fight through a pandemic. They they just don't get to take the day off or they can't telework. You know, uh, the Army can't telework uh, as an institution. And so we're going to live with infectious disease on this planet forever. And it's important that uh, they shook off the rust and had to think about this right now because this isn't the last pandemic I suspect in our lifetimes they'll have to deal with. Uh, so when you contrast the disaster, which was the USS Teddy Roosevelt outbreak on our, the aircraft carrier, which sidelined it in Guam for months, the lessons learned that the Defense Department applied for sailors on the USS Kidd when it destroyer, when it deployed to uh, Southern Command was incredibly, it was the polar opposite and much better and much improved. And they were able to keep the containment very small. The response was immediate and everything worked out as well as it could be. And the Navy uh, continues to have a high operational readiness for that ship and its crew. And that's how it should be. Mara, I want to jump to you right now um, and ask how you think about the relative impact of COVID-19 on militaries around the world. Will all militaries be affected equally? How should we think about what the pandemic will mean for the balance of global military power? Look, I think they're all going to face challenges, but how and in what ways they deal with those challenges will be really meaningful. Right. You could see in countries that have really good and thoughtful defense leaders, they'll actually use this as an opportunity for ruthless prioritization, aka the opposite of what we did when sequestration hit. To say that, as your colleague uh, Alice wrote, uh, Todd Harrison, you know, figure out what your crown jewels are, protect your crown jewels. Um, I don't, I don't know if that will happen, but uh, but one one can sure hope so. Uh, I think as they're thinking kind of strategically, it'll come down to the money, right? As it always does. Um, anyone who doesn't think defense budgets are going to be cut, I think is living in fantasy lesson. In my mind, it'll just be a question of how and in, in what ways uh, that's going to, to happen, right? How, how big are the cuts? What's the nature of the cuts? Are we talking two or 3%? Are we talking, you know, 50 billion? What, is, what does that actually look like? So they're all going to face these challenges. What's interesting is some countries are pretty darn good at dealing with less money. 
So if you look at the Middle East, for example, the Iranians do a pretty superb job exerting influence around the region when they don't have much money. Uh, they, they have not uh, kind of prioritized that, that uh, to try to kind of support clients and proxies and what have you. And, you know, you see actually the opposite case, though, with the Gulf states, right? The Gulf states, if you look at the Emiratis, the Saudis, that's sort of a, how they influence what's going on regionally is that they throw a lot of money at, at folks that they support, you know, at, at that moment. So I think there'll be the strategic uh, impact, obviously, in, in terms of how it hits some of our, our partners and some of our adversaries pretty differently. Uh, I would just note for the U.S., of course, we care a lot about European defense, and that's going to get cut significantly. There's just kind of inevitability uh, to that. I also think it's really interesting that what is the comparative advantage for the U.S. military, which is this extraordinary and unparalleled network of allies and partners, is going to face some real strains, not just because of how the money's spent, but also because other countries' militaries will look to us and say, are you actually protecting your troops enough? Are you doing the right things? Because if not, maybe we don't want folks PCSing, as Mackenzie was saying. Maybe we don't want uh, ships docking here. So you could see it affecting it kind of in, in every dynamic possible. So Risa, I want to turn to you then and ask um, about confidence in the military. Um, but I want to talk about how it's, it's notably higher in the United States um, than public confidence in civilian agencies of government are. Um, and also greater than, than confidence in many civilian professions. Some analysts have speculated that the primary role played by healthcare workers um, and the sacrifices civilians have made to respond to the pandemic might moderate this imbalance. Do you think this crisis will change public confidence in the military in either an absolute or a relative sense? And if so, what will that mean? Alice, that's a great question. And maybe before I answer that, I'll just say something um, with respect to what Mara was really was just talking about, which are great points she was making about other militaries, if that's okay with you. Um, so there's another dimension to this, which is that in a lot of the countries that the U.S. partners with, the, the militaries are playing a dual role. They're involved in external defense and they're involved in internal regime control. And one of the things that we may see with COVID and just sort of the strengthening of tools of authoritarianism more broadly is that those militaries are going to have new means and new justification for increasing their influence in those regimes. And that has reverberations because the U.S. deals with those militaries, Egypt, for example, other places. Um, and so there's a lot of sort of internal civil military politics that are shaped by the sort of COVID um, effects and sort of the ramifications of that. So sorry, Mara, I just couldn't resist the comparative question. But uh, to the question that you actually asked me, Alice, um, I think there could be a rebalancing. And I think you're absolutely right. The, the issue is not just that the military has significant social esteem, it's the absence of that esteem for other institutions and the way that that dynamic plays out. Um, and, you know, one sees that there is, you know, I can go around my neighborhood, I hear I'm in Wisconsin, and there's COVID, you know, uh, you know, signs sort of talking about supporting health workers and essential workers, you know, all over the place. And so we're seeing sort of renewed respect for that expertise and the professionalism of those individuals. Um, 
I think ultimately part of that depends on whether that expertise gets politicized um, in the way that we've seen with mask wearing. And, you know, that's a political outcome. And so we won't know or we don't know where that's going to end up. And that would be really unfortunate. Um, as in terms of why we might need a rebalancing, I'll just say something about that. Um, you know, you and I, for example, have had this conversation the last couple of days about um, retired generals speaking out and what that means and whether that's good or bad and what to make of that. And part of what facilitates this sort of elevation of military voices is this unbalanced respect for the military compared with other institutions. It would be so much better, and again, I'm betraying my biases here, if the people that were getting the attention were not former retired generals. Um, and I think they would agree with that, or admirals, right? They, they probably would see it that way as well. Jim Mattis, I think, would agree with that. And so, you know, we need to, we, it's hopeful that maybe we're going to get a shift in society and move toward uh, a more appropriate position of, for the military and society, which is it does a particular job and is not sort of the be-all and end-all of what makes us American. So Mackenzie, I'm going to ask you to take us back to um, the sort of nuts and bolts aspects of this, um, because you've been tracking uh, the Defense Production Act and it's used to manufacture more medical supplies and so forth. There's been a lot of discussion about that. Um, can you walk us through what the DPA does and give us an update on how it has contributed to the response so far? Sure. Uh, it's, it's this old but often updated uh, statute that allows essentially the commander in chief to commandeer industries for manufacturing of certain products as needed, uh, but also technology and other types of services like software uh, to support a national emergency or a war. Uh, it was originally for defense, national defense, it was brought in to include national emergencies and it's invoked all the time. Uh, we just don't know about it uh, or we're not following it as closely, but you know, uh, FEMA uses it often, even the FBI, DHS, lots of federal agencies, but it, the Department of Defense being the largest federal agency of which, you know, in any given year, whatever its budget, about three to $400 billion goes back out the door in spending. So the Department of Defense is the unique expert uh, federal agency in employing the Defense Production Act. And so what it basically means is you can, you can force a company, ideally you don't want to get to that point, to change what they are manufacturing, for example, or to speed it up, which is why President Trump invoked it in a couple of different cases. Now, DOD can do that for its industrial base, but the president can do it for any company in America as well. So, you know, he can do it with Ford and GM, you know, kind of like in World War II, where we saw factories overnight change that were building cars to building aircraft and other types of capabilities. Uh, but the Defense Department itself is also specifically um, uh, not just helpful in advising these other federal agencies how to use this tool and to use it often, but they are using it to support federal and state and local authorities. So there's been many contracts, but it, uh, the bulk of it has been focused on uh, increased swab production, basically doubling it in a month from 20, 20 million to 40 million, um, procuring, you know, about 6 million N95 masks, 14 million non-medical and surgical masks, 
exam gloves, isolation gowns, ventilators, you name it. I mean, it's a long, it's, it's quite the long list. Uh, even the Coast Guard uh, has has jumped in on this. So basically, if you listen to Pentagon officials um, as of a couple of weeks ago, the department has leveraged 8,000 contracting activities in response to COVID-19. And so uh, in support of the larger civil response, which is really what they should be doing because they are the supporting partner uh, to these other agencies. So trying to bring all of these pieces together, I have a question for all of you, which is if, if you uh, got 10 minutes with the Secretary of Defense and you were going to advise him about where to focus his energy right now, um, what would you say? Does he need new authorities? Are there things he should say? Um, are there messages he should be sending to the American people, to Congress, to the force? Um, you know, how, how would you use that time with him? And Pam, I'll start with you and then I'll go around to the others. <laughs> this is a question I roll around in my head all the time, by the way. So <laughs> we don't have enough time. Um, we are in a rupture moment. You know, I think all of us brilliant folks on this call, you know, all of us who care about, you know, the institution and our country study this, but we're in a rupture moment where there's really just a need for being clear. And I think for me, fundamentally, I would ask if we have, like, I, I, I repeat myself, but we must get clear as a nation. And I'm just going to say it for myself, watching, um, you know, National Guard people mobilize um, in the pandemic and even now, um, seeing black and brown children in the streets being treated like enemy combatants. Um, the fact that we have been in endless wars in mostly black and brown countries and then come home to militarize our own communities is not an accident. And the Secretary of Defense has a definitive choice right now. And so I would, um, you know, mostly not really advise, but encourage to go back to basics of um, the oath that we took, frankly. Um, the other thing I would say is I would, I would advise him um, that the National Guard, my fear is that we have a public health duty right now, right? Pandemic has not gone away. And in fact, in crisis, it may go up. And it, you know, scholars have said that it will likely go up. And also the National Guard plays a critical state function around emergency um, climate insecurity and national disasters. And so my fears right now that I would tell him um, are, um, heaven forbid, um, you know, we have a climate emergency in the next few months. And I have a real question if in the summer months when we have another migration swell, will we treat those migrants as enemy combatants as well? Risa. What I wouldn't do for those 10 minutes, <laughs> he's a busy guy. Um, I would say that you need to do more than reflexively state that the military is apolitical to keep it out of domestic politics, that that's not cutting it. And there are a lot of pressures um, drawing the military into, into politics, case in point, this sort of the last 24 hours, um, this sort of whiplash of, you know, let's deploy active forces outside DC, let's pull them back. Should we invoke the Insurrection Act? All of that. I mean, that is case in point, you know, why there needs to be a thoughtful understanding of how to resist 
civilian politicization of the military. And um, we're not doing it very well. Um, we could do it better. Um, the solution that we have right now is for retired generals to write op-eds. That's not a good solution. And so, you know, that's what I would say to him is it's an ugly problem. It's not what you want to do. It's not what you should necessarily be doing, but it's the facts of the day. And so think about it and figure it out. Risa, or, uh, sorry, Mackenzie, what would you do with your 10 minutes? Yes, I too hope uh, his staff will tune into our <laughs> webinar for some advice. Uh, the first thing I would do is to pile a little bit on what something Pam said earlier. Uh, you know, nobody, there's arguably no one more powerful in changing Americans' perceptions about, you know, nobility and hero worship and, uh, and work than the Defense Department leadership by saying, you know what, we are a great organization. Yes, these amazing heroes take risks, et cetera, and raise their hand, but DOD is not perfect, as she said, and the military is not better than the civilians they pledge to protect. Like, I think that, I, if you could just scream it from the rooftops, and we heard this from the last Secretary of Defense, the same one weighing in, uh, as well as John Kelly, they basically, uh, in various formats said, in troop talks said, you know, you're better than Americans. And no, like, the, and that's pervading the organization. And let me give you an example. The Army um, and one of the DOD still doing, you know, virtual uh, press conferences. An Army leadership brought up the latest sexual assault figures for the United States Army and they're, they're up, assaults are up and that's not good. And so they were talking about this, they were putting it in at the end of the remarks and they're like, you know, that's terrible, we gotta do better, et cetera, et cetera. And then they're like, anyway, but you guys are the best in the world and everything's fine and you're great, so thanks. And there's this huge disconnect with what they had just said. And that same thing applies to racism. Uh, the Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force with his epic thread this week, uh, it was remarkable and his boss weighed in, but yet there, right there alone was the disparity. The Chief Master Sergeant who is enlisted is of color and his boss is white because the overwhelming majority of the officer corps is. And the, you know why is that? And what are we doing to address it? That would be point one. And quickly, point two is that, you know, on this larger question of um, Risa and Mara's points, which I couldn't foot stop more. There's this instinct since 9/11 to constantly reach for the military tool as the solution to every problem, and it's not just COVID. But it, early days in the pandemic, it was put the military in charge, put the military in charge uh, with Katrina, put the military in charge, and we did. Uh, I think that Dr. Esper and all those around him, including those in uniform, need to internalize, you know, each side can be better because the other is strong. Let us do our jobs well, because as Mara said, we're not good at a lot of things that you're asking us to do, uh, and you do yours well. The Department of Defense is to look outward. They are to provide security. Others provide safety here in America, and they are different. To use violence in the name of the state to achieve a political end is what the Defense Department's core job is or to prevent that from happening. That's it. And let's let them do that and do that well. Okay, Mara. What yes. is your 10 minutes? I wanna give thumbs up to all of the previous comments. Look, if this is not a civil military relations crisis, I do not know what one is, period, full stop. And I think that's important to note because some of the things that generally make folks uncomfortable, like retired general officer speaking out, 
et cetera, we're an upside down world. And actually those things are important. So a couple of things I would say, um, there has been a crisis of caring across US society in the post 9-11 wars, right? This has been uh, recounted, in fact, in the great book that Corey Shockey and Jim Mattis wrote. Um, and, and effectively, there's kind of this flimsy support for the US military. Most Americans don't know anyone in the military. They don't really know what they do. And, uh, and, and, and you know, they don't obviously have to make any, any sacrifices on the whole for, for what they're doing. And what I would underscore is that is flimsy. And that can be lost pretty darn quickly because it is lacking in that depth. So they should be nervous. I would also say that while our field is obsessed with politicization issues, something is seriously messed up if we think that talking about racism and sexism and inclusion is political and therefore we can't actually have it on the table. Finally, I would say these aren't fluffy issues. Right? If you care about lethality or competition or any of the hot words that are, you know, the ones that we, you know, would say around our world and, and across the Pentagon, if you care about those things, you actually have to then care about issues of inclusion, right? If you care about what we're doing vis-a-vis -vis China and Russia, this stuff is extra important. How you're treating your people and who your people are matters a whole lot. All right. Well, that is all the questions that I have for you, ladies. However, our, our uh, viewers have tons of questions for you. So I'm going to try and get through as many as possible in our next 22 minutes or so. Um, so first I have Jamie Slesh, I can never say this, Schlesinger <laughs> from Rutgers University, who wants to know um, how COVID-19 might have a lasting impact on the US position in international conflict in the future. So, you know, thinking big IR theories and the U.S. position uh, in international security. I'm going to ask uh, if Mackenzie has thoughts on this. Uh, thanks. I, I was going to say Mara, actually, uh, so she might want to weigh in after me, but uh, I'll pick on her next. <laughs> Uh, right. So uh, everyone is watching and they're watching very closely. And what's interesting is how our response to, I mean, the Teddy Roosevelt was a global international news story dumpster fire. It was awful and it, it, it couldn't get off the front page for a week. And, and the US military was caught a little off guard and flat footed and yet they were saying, everything's fine, we're super ready, nothing to see here, can still go into war. And there was this really strange disconnect. If you were following those events, you're like, that, that can't be right. They're not gonna do that. And turns out they weren't ready and things were bad. And there was this difficulty in projecting any sort of weakness, but everyone is watching. I think leaders need to know that, you know, can the US, like I said, fight through a pandemic, deal with infectious disease and continue to operate well, but also not just COVID, but now the protests and the riot, um, the protests, excuse me. How do, as I think it was Pam who said it, and sorry if I got that wrong, how are we treating our military and how are we using them? Is civilian control of the military and the constitutional fundamental foundational tenet of, of our system? Do we really not believe that? Because if we're going to lose credibility on that issue, we're not going to be able to ask them to go do, you know, crawl into the bunker with us. I, I think I, it'll be a lot harder to keep that trust if we sound so two-faced. So Amara, now I am going to pick on you. What do you think on this? Yeah, those are all fantastic points. I mean, 
you know, I've been worried about the the sort of state of meaningful civilian oversight for a while. I think particularly in the post 9-11 wars, it hasn't been what it should be in terms of what the force was was doing and how funds were being spent and authorizations and all of those things. Uh, but I think as we look broader, uh, the lasting impact will be folks looking around and saying, hey, you are constantly educating us and lecturing and dissertating about how great it is that you have this system of civilian control. Show us what it looks like. Unfortunately, as Mackenzie outlined, right, the Roosevelt is a terrible case study. And so I hope we will be able to say a few months from now, you know what, uh, partner X or partner Y, that case study is being taught at the US Army War College. It's being taught at all the other uh, professional military education institutions. And we're having a serious and real debate about those issues. Same thing with uh, kind of the broader response to the pandemic in terms of what we've done and what we haven't done. To be able to say to the international community, we've recognized things, we're acknowledging where we've screwed up, which by the way is probably a thing that uh, Esper might wanna add on his to-do list. We've acknowledged where we've screwed up and we are taking steps forward, knowing that they're imperfect, but we're at least trying. I think that is, I mean, that represents the goodness of what, what can be done here um, and sort of this model. Great. Um, our next question is from Julie George from Cornell. Um, and Pam, I think this is going to go to you because you mentioned it in your remarks earlier. Julie is curious about um, how we can confront the notion that our military is an imperfect institution and uphold accountability. Um, and this question makes me think about the Air Force in particular has called this out in, in recent weeks. Um, and I'd love your input here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of jokes about the Air Force, but I'm, I was very proud to be an airman. Um, Chief Wright has been an inspiration of mine for a while. And the reality is, is that what was already said, I was an intelligence analyst, right? And I served in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And when people say the military is not a political institution, don't politicize the military. I'm like, what does that even mean? Because I'm pretty sure that my experience sitting in those places, doing the work that I was doing, on counterterrorism as a young, you know, woman of color was pretty political. Um, and so let's let's call a spade a spade a spade. I mean, the contradiction and the hypocrisy of our core values not lining up with our actions must end. And it's on our leaders to first step up uh, and draw that line. Secondly, um, the complicity of Congress as our oversight body is abhorrent egregious. Um, I am horrified as an American and as a patriot um, that something so rampantly obvious that we're talking about on this call, um, there has not been more swift execution of those powers. Uh, and it's a rot in our society. And again, to my point about, you know, the rose colored glass, like the rose colored, the military is so great, they'll, they'll take care of it. I think it is dangerous. Um, a lot of my work around organizing war affected you know, communities, veterans, military and diaspora communities. Um, we cannot be divorced from our own civic duty and accountability to speak up um, if Congress is going to do their job. But there's a real question right now if they're going to actually have accountability um, around such obvious as uh, Mara said, um, civ mill chaos. Risa, um, 
Sarah Plana, who is, uh, full disclosure, one of the founders of the Future Strategy Forum, um, has a couple of questions that I'm going to throw to you that are about how, how we, or what we would say to active duty troops um, if they are, in fact, uh, ordered um, uh, to confront protesters in some way. So her questions were, essentially, how do you, how do you think the military will or should respond? Um, and then what would you say to commanders who are facing this crisis? Well, you gave me an easy question. I did. <laughs> um, I think it's really tough. I mean, there's an inherent tension, right? You know, military people in the military sign up to, and to follow orders and that's how it works. And yet, we rely on those orders, you know, being legitimate and being wise. And, you know, we know from lessons around the world that when you get young soldiers out in the streets facing people that look like them, that are maybe from their communities, and are asked to do something that could result in the harm to those people that they don't want to do it. And to be put in that position is the remarkable ethical, un I mean, difficult ethical position for those people to be in. And I guess I don't think there is a solution. The solution is don't put them in that position. I mean, we know none of the governors have called for this. Secretary Esper was yesterday prepared to send folks home that are outside of DC. We don't need to have active duty military policing the American people. And they shouldn't be in that position. It's not good for, for those young soldiers. Um, it's not good for the protesters who need to have the right to speak their minds and it, it shouldn't be done. And if it's done, I will be sickened and appalled. Alice, can I just add one quick point yeah, on that? Um, I, I guess what I would say then to those leaders, uh, the command climate you set right now is really, really extra important. And we've seen some really superb leadership from folks like General, General Goldfein and Chief Wright or General Langell. We've seen some less great leadership from others. And I would say folks are watching. Your most junior folks are watching. You name it. Everyone is seeing, are you willing to have conversations about what's going on? Again, this is under the rubric that it doesn't have to be political per se, but you sure got to have a conversation about it. Um, Mackenzie, Theo Milanopoulos from Columbia University asks, what role might COVID-19 and its broader economic dislocation have on military recruitment and personnel policies? Sure. Well, the first issue is, I think, one Mara raised, which is there is just a threat to defense spending in general because so many other challenges to safety and security have clearly been underfunded. Even DOD's, the Department of Defense's own medical stockpile for its use, not the national medical stockpile, um, was clearly paltry and half of it was expired. I don't remember the exact figure, but it was, it was pretty pathetic. So nobody was really thinking this through. And there's now the, an issue about 
you know, um, investment. I'm worried about that. That's issue one. But more specifically to the question, uh, the Defense Department's probably going to need uh, to do a long, so right now they're doing sort of lessons learned on the fly, like I talked about from the TR to the, the USS Kid. But what really needs to be examined is institutionally, uh, by workforce, by service, uh, the response to this pandemic with the expectation that it will happen again. And other issues that Pam talked about earlier, you know, like climate change, you know, there will be more work related to that for the force, even if it's just supporting friends and allies in those responses. So institutionally, I think I foresee a significant amount of change, but not, not wholesale by any means. Uh, I forgot the second part of the question, Alice. Can you remind me, please? Yeah, the second part was just um, the implications for recruitment and personnel yeah. policies. Thank you. Okay, right. Uh, so, um, Ms. Martin knows I'm, uh, I'm regularly the staff member of all these uh, National Defense Strategy Commission. So the commission in 2010 that I helped staff, um, we looked extensively at this exact question and this kind of data. Uh, different types of events that cause disruption in the economy, um, but it's similar to um, COVID. Although I guess it wouldn't be on the scale of 40 million unemployed, but nonetheless, uh, lots of things affect recruiting and retention. Uh, retention actually tends to do well in times of uncertainty uh, because this is such a, uh, a, a good and secure job for most people. Um, recruiting, it, it's, it's different, right? So immediately after 9-11, you know, you see a spike. Uh, the wars, uh, the wars go south, and then there are waivers, you know, for arrests and drug abuse and other kinds of criminal activity uh, across the force. And then you see a decline again continue. But then we see the recession of 2008, and the economy tanks, and recruiting's high again. So you know, this is a this is this is something that Defense Department leadership has to be tracking and aware of. Uh, they need to um, know how that. They should probably be aware of all the different reasons and causes of why. Um, and how this has happened already in the past. It's strange though, with the virtual recruiting right now, the DOD leadership, um, particularly, I think it was the Undersecretary of the Air Force has said, you know, actually, or excuse me, the, he's now Personnel and Readiness Undersecretary, has said, this stuff's working really great, or it's going really well, we're probably gonna keep it up after the pandemic subsides. So that might be an interesting side effect of this too. Thanks. Um, so the next question is from Kelsey Atherton from the Fellow Travelers blog. Um, he notes that the U.S. military has a global presence, deploys and circulates around the globe constantly. And so he asks about the possibility that the U.S. military and its movements might themselves be a vector for pandemic spread, much like in 1918. Um, Mara, you mentioned this possibility earlier, I think. So I want to throw this question to you first and then open it to others. Yeah, it's a really good question, Kelsey. Yes, absolutely. I mean, look, just look, just when you see the data, it's pretty clear that the U.S. response to the pandemic hasn't been all that great, um, and we're obviously not the only ones seeing that. And so, absolutely, you know, it, it is what I find sort of profoundly ironic. What is so good for us, I think, on one level of national security, having this global military posture all over the world. Let's you know the military get kind of you know just about any place absolutely is going to have an effect. And it'll be fascinating because our allies and partners around, around the world are going to have to make some really hard calls 
their populations, I have to assume, at some point are not going to be terribly enthusiastic of us coming in and out, you know, a la the Roosevelt case study, et cetera. And they're going to want to know, what, what are we doing? And so th this idea that we worry about sometimes, oh, is this country, you know, is the health system up to par, et cetera, they're looking at us that way now. I have a quick, uh, just something I wanted to add. Please. Um, we would be remiss if we don't, it feels like a million years ago, but Captain Crozier, um, USS Roosevelt. Something I've been thinking about a lot, um, which is hard to say, but this is also a labor issue. Um, I mean, the heroism that, you know, Captain Crozier showed, the care for his troops. I think a lot about the NCOs and the officers that will have to really take care of their troops, who let's remember, in reality, are not paid great. They're not being paid that much to take on this amount of burden. Um, weekend warriors, National Guard people are paid an hourly wage. And so, you know, that's of, of great concern. And I think that there will be incredible people that want to do um, that, that will have to make really hard choices and choose between their service and the oath that they took. Um, but the labor side of it is something I'm thinking about a lot. Alice, could I just add one quick point on that? That's a superb point, Pam. One of the things I worry a lot about when we use like the Crozier case study and, and you know, if we look, remember what seems like years ago, the, the whole debacle with Seknav Spencer, and right now obviously the situation with Esper, I fear a lot that there will be folks in uniform who say, those civilians just don't know what they're doing. And they're going to group all defense civilians within that. Obviously that relationship is one that's inherently tense. It was really bumpy in the Obama administration. It has gotten even more bumpy in this administration. And I think that would be inherently problematic and unhealthy for our system of civilian control. So speaking of civilians, Suzanne Freeman from MIT, who must be after my own heart, asks, what steps can we take to build civilian expertise and elevate those voices in the domestic civil-military relations debate? so that in the future, retired generals are not the leading voices on these issues. I want to open that up to anyone who wants to answer it. But I will look at Mara if nobody else jumps. <laughs> sure. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll start. Um, and, and it's a wonderful question. First, I would say it's a two-way street, right? So Mackenzie had this fantastic comment where she was talking about um, you know, Mattis, for example, and, and, and Kelly going to the troops and saying, hey, you're better than everyone. We all know that. Come on. Um, it's really important that folks in the military think about what they're doing that might contribute to this uh, in addition to the, the civilians. Um, I am a, a strong believer in folks building their expertise and capabilities. Go to great schools like SICE. Um, and, and, and I shouldn't say Marquette and AU, look at, look at who else is on this call. Um, you know, work, work on getting smart, go to events, go work at uh, fantastic think tanks like CSIS and AEI and Brookings. And, you know, kind of build your credibility in different ways, uh, I think, in this field. Um, that's, that's all really important to the extent possible. Uh, build relationships with folks that are sort of on the other side uh, of that divide, if you will. That's going to be both better for you and better for them in terms of understanding where folks are, are coming from. Uh, but this is this is a real concern. I mean, you're, you're highlighting a very serious issue. You, you know, a, a lot of uh, defense civilian wonks yesterday and over the last few days have been saying, hey, things are really problematic. We're really worried. But then you get General Mattis, who is not seen as former SecDef Mattis, but as General Mattis, and he says something, 
you know, after quite quite a while of not saying anything, uh, and and suddenly a lot of folks say, oh gosh, wait, maybe it really is an issue. I don't love, I think, as Risa was saying earlier, that there is that that uh, kind of disproportionate credibility. It exists right now, um, su such as it is. But I think doing what you can to build up capabilities, expertise, and exposure can help kind of uh, mitigate it to an extent. So I'm going to call on Mackenzie and then Risa. Oh, sorry, Risa, to jump the oh, line. No, no, go ahead. Um, Right, so it's like how uh, you know women's issues shouldn't be talked about by women only. Persons of color issues shouldn't be talked about only by persons of color. Civilian strength of an expertise and whatever should be talked about by those in uniform. And to sort of footstep, I think Mara's point, uh, it needs to be important to them. And unfortunately, the way we've Congress has increasingly and gradually expanded the power of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs in particular, which Mara knows as a commissioner on the 2018 uh, Defense Strategy Commission better than others, um, they're, they're, we're trending in the opposite direction. I think also back to sort of a foundational point of this conversation that pa Pam has raised repeatedly and well, uh, it's time to relook. So, so, you know, we've talked to this theme that, you know, others do important work too, or noble work or whatever the word is. We have more heroes that they wear different capes. So educators and teachers, for example, not just nurses and doctors, we all know it's hard to spend the day with your kids and try and teach them stuff. Um, but to that point, you know, so, but you go into the movie theater and you go into the Starbucks and you go anywhere and there's a military discount. Now I understand why for, enlisted as Pam raised, there's a pay issue there. But there aren't discounts for my kids' teachers and boy, are they underpaid. I mean, way underpaid relative to what they do every day or used to do every day. So for example, so we need to relook uh, a lot of the favoritism that came as a result of the wars, probably for very good reasons and noble causes for veterans in particular. And I'm now referring to an article I have coming out when Ryan Evans tells me it's coming out. Um, where we are populating because of Congress's and White House um, edicts, the Federal Defense Civilian Workforce with, you guessed it, former retired veterans and military personnel. You're never gonna have a def strong defense civilian workforce if it's a revolving door for those in uniform. Okay, Risa. So just to Mackenzie's point, there's this Pew survey um, probably you've seen it, some of you have, in which the question is asked, who contributes to the welfare of the country the most? Who do you think ranks at the top? The military, and they rank above teachers. That to me is a striking, striking imbalance. Um, but to the broader point of civilian control, I'm gonna harp on one particular issue that there's a lot of things I think we could talk about. And that is, we need to stop disparaging politics and politicians, and especially military folks need to stop doing that. If you read memoirs, popular memoirs, you will find comments in there about you know Washington's politics and politicians and it's just fun sport to make fun of that process so how do we call on congress to act like an appropriate oversight body when we treat them like crap and think that they're unworthy of that job 
So I think we're not who we are not serving our own interests through that. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little preachy here. I'll stop. But it, it's something that I think, you know, a piece of the puzzle that a cultural piece of the puzzle that we can change easily through our own actions and reflections about it. Well, we could all clearly keep talking to each other and to all of you for the rest of the day, but I just want to close it out and thank all of my panelists so very much for a really excellent discussion. Thank you so much, Mara, Pam, Risa, McKenzie, for a really excellent discussion today. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.